This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Man, 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 man. You guys can have your seats. Hey, how y'all doing? Y'all good? Yeah, 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 yeah. We want to get a Bible inside of your hands. You don't got a, a Bible with you. Raise your hands. We want to get you strapped with the Bible this morning. And, um, <laughs> there you go. I hold it down, you know. We're going to be in, 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 in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. So go ahead and turn over there. As we are getting over there, couple of announcements. I just want to remind you, when you leave out, there's a couple of things out to the, to, to the, to the left. We'd love for you to stop and check. We have our um, parent partnership that we're doing with, with, with kids. Stop there. Find out how you can get connected, what's going on and stuff. If you have kids in um, kids' church, I'm talking to you, right? <clears throat> stop there. Check it out. Find out how you get connected. We have Exodus groups that are starting. They got information over there, and I, I want to take a make a plug for Gospel Encounter. Yes, Gospel Encounter, transformative time. Um, so that's February 22nd. Go online. There's more information on, on our Facebook page uh, about Gospel Encounters. You can see myself or any of us to, if you have some questions, like what is this thing? But what we do is we give the entire day to God. Right, and we come here, and we so we have breakfast together, lunch together, and dinner together, and we dive into God together. So it's an incredible time. That being said, let's go up to the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Malachi chapter three, verses six through twelve. Um, so we're going to put the verse up on the screen. If you'll on a up here, and if you'll stand with me, we will read through Malachi. Chapter 6, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, oh, let me make sure you guys are ready. Y'all ready? Oh, my bad. I'm, so, I'm excited to preach this thing, man. All right, all right. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, said the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithe and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is, hold on. I will rebuke the devourer for you. <laughs> So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, 6-12. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. 
I knew I was missing something. Man. Listen. So, as we was going through the book of Malachi, right? And, we, and we're getting ready to wrap up. Next week is going to be the last, last one inside the series. But something that we want you guys to, to see, as the book of Malachi was opening up, God had this series of confrontation with his people, and his opening confrontation was the, their doubt of his love. Their doubt of his love. And their doubt of his love had this breakdown that we've been looking at all the way through the book of Malachi. Today is no different. The things that we're looking at here today has everything to do with their doubt of his love. So last week, Pastor Aaron was preaching, right? And something significant that was happening last week that, that leads into this week is, is where the people ask, where is the God of justice? Where is this God? You know, the, the one who delivered us from oppression in Egypt. He, he was all about our justice then. He came and he rescued us. He, he let us out. You know, the same God who made all those promises to us at the mountain and said we was in this relationship together. That God, the same one that brought us into the promised land and even drove out the people that was there so that we could be there. That God, where is he? As Pastor Aaron preached last week, we started to hear God respond. And one of the ways he started to respond is, first of all, he says, man, I, I want your heart more than I want your words. I want to be in a real relationship. Not all of these games that's, that's being played. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come to personally purify you with the fire of my spirit. That way I will shape your heart and you will offer up pure worship. That's, that, that started the conversation that we're, we're, we're continuing today. Now the thing is, when they asked, where's the God of justice it's like they're saying, God, you changed. It's like, it's like a wife, after getting married, turning to the husband and saying, where's, where's the man that I married? You've changed. But this week we continue to look at, at God's response to them, to respond to their question of where is this, this, this God? And we start off, and you see in verse 6, he continues, and like he's saying, well, second of all, I don't change. I don't change. As a matter of fact, let me start with this. God does not change, so we don't get consumed. He says, I don't change, so you don't get consumed. Now, what's he doing here? He's making a comparison between him and them on this discussion of, of change. He's saying, I don't change. And what this means for you is that you don't get consumed. What's being implied is that they are the ones that have changed. 
That's why they're at risk of being consumed right now. You see, they entered into this covenant with God. They entered into this covenant with God, one that's bound by blood. It was one that they joyfully submitted to. It was at the mountain. God ran through all the covenants. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the covenants. And, and, and they all were like, yes, sure, we're going to submit to all these things. And now this covenant had these conditional aspects of it. Which means if one of them were to break the covenant, they forfeit their life. If you remember back during the scene when the covenant was being made, Moses sprinkled blood on them and on the altar and all over the place. And the sign is there is that if one of us was to break this covenant, let us be ripped apart like the animal that was ripped apart for this covenant and all this blood. Basically blood in, blood out. If we break it, and they have repeatedly broken the conditions of the covenant. That's the conditional aspects. They have refused to continue submitting. They, they said we will submit, and, 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 and they start to, but they refuse to, to walk it out. So they have changed, putting them in a position where they deserve to be consumed rightfully. But God knew it would be impossible for them to keep this covenant. He knows them. He knows their hearts. He knows the, the deep insides of their hearts. So he has this plan, and he lays out some of that plan last week when he says he's going to come and clean their hearts. But he also included inside of the covenant these non-conditional aspects of the covenant. It's called the perpetual covenant or everlasting covenant. Now, these aspects are solely held together by him because he is the one that's everlasting. They're solely kept together by him. They're both in it, but the everlasting part of it, that's him, which solely depends on him. So even if they break it, they break their parts of it, he will honor his part in their repentance. Like, y'all should be ripped to shreds, but in your repentance, I'm going to uphold my part. That's called grace. So long as you repent, so long as you turn, so long as you come back. You even see... God teaching his disciples the this, this same principle in Luke 7, 17, 3 to 4. And he's talking to them. He said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He's, he's teaching them to, to act out the same things that he is doing with them. So long as you repent and turn, you will be forgiven. So because he does not change, he remains faithful to his everlasting covenant with us because he doesn't change. And in grace, we are not consumed. 
God is saying, you're the ones that changed, not me. That's actually why you're not dead right now. But the question is, the question for today is, why do they feel that he changed? I mean, I know they're in rebellion, but why do they feel that he's changed, that something is different? What's going on here? What does the questioning of God's worry about when they say, where is the God of justice? What is the the question of God's worry about? What does it reveal? You see, it draws attention to a distance between them and God. That's the only reason why someone needs to return this distance. See, the temple, it represented God's presence with the people. God said, I want to be with them. I want to be in the midst of them. So make a a temple so I could dwell inside the temple and be with the people. But they're now saying it seems like he is nowhere to be found. He is MIA or just doesn't care. But you see in verse 7, God actually confirms the distance. If you turn over there, you look at verse 7, you see God actually confirms the distance when he says, return to me. Now I will return to you. There's a distance there. But here's what I want you guys to, to see and understand about this distance. It's actually the same distance that we see in the garden at the fall. Let's look at this for a second. Genesis 3 and 9, right after the fall, God shows up, and and it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I'm wondering if we can see this all the way at the beginning. God is like saying to them, Where are you? Now we get to the end of the Old Testament. They're turning to God and saying, Where are you? This wasn't a question of location, though. He wasn't like, man, where's the GPS at? Show me your exact spot. It was a question of closeness. Adam had stopped trusting God. And in his lack of trust, there became a distance in his relationship with God. Adam became distance, a distance that God could fill. So God shows up and says, where are you? And what you see as we continue to look at this is something that echoes through our history. You see, a lack of trust creates distance and fear that leads to self-consciousness and self-protection. The thing here that we're pushing into is trust. Trust, that's the deal. Because of a lack of trust, It even affected how they responded to God when he showed up in the garden and said, where are you? It affected how they responded. You look at verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid. See, the absence of trust allows fear to breed. There's no trust there. Fear starts stepping stepping in. And in the fall, Adam stopped trusting God, where before in God's presence there was peace, now there is anxiety and fear. I was afraid. All of a sudden, these are new emotions that he's experiencing. And then he noticed himself. He notices something about himself. He says, 
I was naked because I was naked. Now, this is the first time that he has observed himself outside of the context of God. The first time. In his distance, his focus is completely turned from God inward unto self. Apart from God. Separated from God. And I believe Adam could literally feel the distance. And not know what to do with it. Not know what it is. What is this thing that I'm feeling? He could feel the distance. He could feel the absence of his covering. And it made him feel exposed and vulnerable. I'm naked. All of a sudden, he notices this. Then he says, I hid myself. He knew something was missing, but didn't realize he had distanced himself from God. It was God's intimate presence that was missing, and he could feel it. He could feel the lack, but since he no longer trusted God, his default was to trust self, so I hid myself. And in the effort of self-protection, his response was to withdraw and withhold, and the primary thing that he withholds is himself. I wanted to to look at this so we can see the ripple effects throughout history that leads even into this conversation today. You see, when we are solely dependent on the finite reality of self, we're always confronted with the fear of not enough. So we withdraw and we withhold. You see, we're constantly trying to make up for our finite limitations. In one way or another, we see it inside of our life in one way or another. And it's really us trying to make up for a level of distance. You see, our finite is united with and covered by God's infinite. And when we are distant and disconnected from God, we feel that finite also more. We, 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 we feel our mortality. We feel our limitations. And as a form of self-protection and covering, we withhold. And what we ultimately withhold is self. And it takes so many forms. And it sets the, the backdrop and the context as, as God is speaking to his people here in the book of Malachi. You see, they too have started to notice the distance finally. And they respond, where is the God of justice? They notice the distance and, and, they, and they ask, where is God at? But they feel God is the one who has distanced himself. Completely oblivious to the process of distancing inside of their own hearts. You see... When we align ourselves with the idols of our heart and the idols of culture, there is a distance that's immediate, like in the garden, and then there is a gap that grows over time, like you see here in Malachi. The thing is that the distance is normalized. That's what we see. That's what we experience. The distance is, 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 is treated like a normal part of life. But there is a process that I want us to understand that happens with this distance. You see, it often happens step by step. 
And each step away from God is made to feel way smaller than it actually is. You're thinking you're taking baby steps, but you're taking leaps. And you don't realize it. You don't feel it. Everything is made to feel normal until one day you notice the distance and you say, how did we get here? Everything seems to be falling apart. Everything seems to be collapsing on you. And it's the accumulated effect of distance. And you feel as if God has abandoned you. You ask the question, where's God? Where was you at when this happened? Where was you at when that happened? Are you really here or not? Where is this God that we talk about? So again, God responds to his people and says, return to me. And I will return to you. Now, here's what he's not saying. When you hear him say, return to me, and I will return to you, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, come, let us return to one another. He's not saying that. It's not like we've both mutually grown apart. That's not what he's saying. Like, you know, 50-50, you meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway. No, no, no. He's saying, out of a lack of trust, you have distanced yourself from me. So you no longer notice my presence because we no longer have intimacy with one another. So return to me by surrendering your heart and trust. And you will notice my presence once more. You will once again benefit from the fruits of an intimate relationship of trust. Return to me and I will turn to you. You'll start noticing all the beauty all over again. And they respond, well, how do we return? Well, by itself, it seems like a noble question. But it's not so noble and it's not so innocent. You see, there has been this lobbying back and forth throughout this entire book of Malachi. And the reality of it, this isn't genuine seeking of direction. They don't actually feel that they've been doing anything wrong. They're like, man, listen, I showed up to that service you told me to show up to. I went to that group you told me to go to. You know, I did that thing that you suggested I should think. Well, I mean, what else do you want me to do? I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm looking at my checklist. I checked them all off. What else do you actually really want? So how do I return to you? Like, like, I, like I'm here and I'm doing everything. Their response is more sarcastic. It's more in a disbelief of God's claims. So here's what God does. He instead highlights a specific pattern of, of, of distrust that's been hindering the relationship and hurting the family. He responds in verse 8. And he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Will a man rob God? Will a man rob the God that created the planets, the universe, the stars, the God that created the cells inside of your body that are functioning together, the God that created oceans and mountains? How audacious does that sound? And yet that's exactly what you're doing. This language of robbing is the same language 
that's used to talk about when an enemy is, has, has attacked and they start to rob and pillage the community. So he likes to say, will a man pillage what's mine? And in typical fashion, they respond, man, how have we robbed you? He responds, in your tithes, in your contributions. You see, the people of God are called into a rhythm of generosity. And there's a lot that's going on here that speaks into tr- into trust and everything else. And part of that generosity was the tithe. Now, I know many of us enter into this conversation at different places. I don't want to assume everyone knows. When I started going to church, I didn't know what they really meant by tithe and stuff like that. But tithe means one-tenth or 10%. The covenant law called all the people of God to join together as a family, giving 10% of their increase to God. Let's do this. Let's do this as a family. And they were to do this off the top. They would go through and pick all the best, and, and before they divvied out things to the servants and to the family and everything else, they, they, they went and they got what goes to God and be like, Lord, this is for you. It was the individuals and the families coming together in this communal act of worship through giving. And the fact that, that trust was needed to faithfully do this, because it's always going to be in the back of the mind, man, shouldn't we save up for a rainy day? Or what if this goes around? Or what if that goes down? Trust needed to be done. And the fact that trust was needed, it highlighted it was to be done in close fellowship with God. Trust equals faith. That's what this is all about. It's all about trust. It's all about faith. And I know we hear the word tithe and we're like, man, isn't that like, like old covenant, the tithe actually predates the covenant law. You go back to Genesis 14, right? I want to share this story. This is a story about, about Abraham. It's pre-covenant, pre-covenant story, right? Abraham, he is the forefather of the people of Israel. Because of God's promises to Abraham is why he has a covenant with Israel now. Back then, he was called Abram. Later in, in, in Genesis 15, Abram trusts God, and his trust is counted to him as righteousness. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. But in this story, Abram has this nephew, right? And his nephew's name is Lot, and Lot lived in Sodom. Now, there was a group of kings that got together, and they attacked Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. They attacked them. Now, Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah reached out for help, so there's another group of kings that came to help them. And there was this big war. There was a whole bunch of kings going together at this big war, and Sodom loses. When Sodom loses, the people go in, and they rob, and they pillage Sodom. They take all of these proceeds, all of this this stuff, and they take people. Some of the people that they, one of the people that they took was Lot. So Abraham hears about it. He hears that that Lot got taken, you know, and then he turns into that guy, Neil Leesom and stuff, right? And he's like, what? You took Lot? (laughs) Well, Abraham hears that Lot gets taken. What Abraham does, he squads up. 
And he goes out to this group of kings. And he's like, yo, where I, where, where's Lot at? And Abraham makes war with the whole group of kings and beats them. Now, after he beats them, he now is in possession of all the stuff that they took from Sodom and all the people. So now Abraham, he's walking, he's going back, he's going back with all this stuff, he's going back um, with his nephew, and, 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 and as Abraham is returning with everything, this priest comes out and meets Abraham on the way, a priest by the name of Melchizedek. He came and he meets him. Now Melchizedek, he brings bread and wine with him. It's like communion. And he, he, and he sits with Abraham. He breaks the bread and the wine. He starts talking with them. And Melchizedek tells Abraham the word of God. He tells Abraham, God is the reason why you won just now. And then Abraham submits to the word of God. And Abraham responds with worship and gives Melchizedek a tithe of all the possessions. This is pre-law. Just Heart worship. Now, we don't know much about Melchizedek because there's not much about him in the Old Testament. He's sort of mysterious. But in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, they talk some about Melchizedek. And while they're talking about Melchizedek, they connect Jesus' priesthood to the order of Melchizedek. And describes Melchizedek as a type of Christ. I just want to read it so we're all on the same page. He says, we have 619, so that 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed them. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, mean type of, resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. So Abraham has this encounter, but the story is dumb because after Abraham tied to Melchizedek, the king of Sodom comes, and he's like, oh, man, you came and you fought this battle. I can't believe you beat all of them. Hey, listen, can you just give me the people that they took back, right? And then the king of Sodom turns around and says, as a way of just showing thankfulness to you, I'll allow you to keep all the proceeds yourself. Everything that they took from us, I'm going to allow you to keep all of it. Now, Abraham turns it down. He gave them not only the people, but he also gave them all the possessions, and he had a reason for turning it all down. He didn't want the king of Sodom to get the glory that belonged only to God. 
He could have kept some for himself. He could have put it aside, but he wanted God to get the glory. In Genesis 14, we see Abraham giving a tenth of all he had to this Christ-like figure out of sacrificial worship. And then out of trusting God, Abraham turns down the opportunity to keep for himself as a way of saying, Lord, I know that you are going to provide. And he gives it all to the king, and he took none for himself in order to make sure Nothing gets the glory that goes to God. I hope you guys are seeing a pattern of trust here. You see, even though we are no longer under the old covenant of the Mosaic law, we continue to join together as a family and give out of sacrificial worship under grace. Now, this kind of worship is only made possible through trust. It's worship, but it's only made possible through trust. And God strategically incorporates aspects of worship that deeply depends on trusting him. It's sacrificial because it's more about what's a sacrifice than 10%. It's more trusting God than self. It's, it's, It's saying I don't want having a good job to get the glory. It's saying I don't want having a good education or a degree to get the glory. It's saying I don't want my my mind and my tactics to get the glory. I want God to get the glory. He is the one that we trust, not what he gives. So God is talking to them. And as he's talking to them, he highlights their giving. But he does it to draw attention to a fruit that traces back to a root of distrust. A distrust which has caused a level of distance in their relationship. Now, why does the Lord refer to theirs and ours issue of giving as as robbery? You see, it's because we have this tendency to process giving as, here's my money and I'm going to give God some of it. But Psalms 24 and 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So all of it all comes from resources that belong to him, that belong to God. And God allows a portion of his resources to be placed in our possession through the means of work and economic systems. But it all still belongs to him. And we are then called into this creational mandate as stewards of God's resources. God continues to call us to join together as a covenant family, to worship through giving sacrificially. Usually that's 10% or more, but it's an amount that requires and displays trust. And even after we give, the rest belongs to him as well. He directs us on how to steward the rest, whether it's with our families, whether it's with our neighbors, or whether it's just being generous towards one another. That's, that's the way how God has set things up. There are people that are in need and an organization that God wants to use, that God has placed what he plans to use to meet their needs in our pockets. It's just part of his way of making sure everyone stays connected. I'm going to put his need right over there. And again, this whole thing is rooted in trust. The whole thing. This is a, a message about trust. So we get to verses 9 and 10, and in 9 and 10, God starts talking about blessings and curses. See, he wants them to realize that their lack of 
trust has led to them being cursed as a group. And he challenges them to see the blessings that come from trusting him. So in Malachi 3 and 9, he says, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Then in 10, he says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, Admittedly, this is a text that's been hijacked by a lot of prosperity preachers and things like that. Yeah, I get it. But it's still true. It's still true. You see, look, God has created the natural flow of things to trust and revolve around him. That's how God has created things. That's how God covenanted the universe into existence by it trusting and depending on him. It's the natural law of creation. Trusting God is how we were naturally created to exist. So, So whenever something functions within the means of how it was created, blessings are natural because it's functioning the way it was created to function. Likewise, Not trusting God takes us out of the natural flow of creation. We start functioning in ways that are unnatural to us. That's not synced up with the rest of creation like trusting self. See, we weren't created to depend and trust on self. We were created to depend and trust on God. So when we function outside of the means of how we were created, curses are natural. I mean, we see this all throughout regular life. There are blessings to treating your body the way it was meant to be treated. And there are curses to not treating your body the way it was meant to be treated. And we start to see those blessings and curses in our own health. Nature is filled with blessings and curses when things function the way that they were created versus when they don't. Even when we look at Scripture, all the creation was created to trust God. And Scripture gives examples like birds being created to trust God and bees trusting God and flowers trusting God. But it's the stewards of creation that choose to part from the rest of creation and trust self. Stewards, that's us. And God is challenging them. He's challenging us to sink back up with the natural flow of all of existence and trust him. The thing is, we, we currently live inside of a culture where curses are normalized. Don't worry, that's just how things are. Sometimes they're celebrated and they're idolized. And, and they're treated like it's supposed to be like that. Let's dress it up and make a dance around it. Even blessings become idolized and they become valued as more important than God himself. I'm just trying to get to the blessed part. So self-centeredness and individualism becomes lifted up. I mean, we, we wrestle with this in and out. Even sometimes God puts it on our heart to be, to be generous. Even in our, our giving, he would be like, put something, an amount on our heart that we know is a sacrifice. We know it is. We know that we're going to have to trust God to do this particular thing. But, and we go into, into um, negotiation with God and we decide to give a lesser amount that we're more comfortable with. I know you said this, God, but I don't think you did the math. I did the math for you. That doesn't work. But here's what I'm going to give instead. And it doesn't even feel like it's a sacrifice. 
It wasn't that most of them weren't giving. That's why he goes and he's... And he talks to them because he's talking to them about fully submitting to God. So that's why in 3 and 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. I'm trying to hurry up, but I know we got some more I want to cover. You see, when the church is functioning together as a family, jointly obedient in our generosity, trusting God together, we become further mobilized as a family on mission together. That's what it's designed to do. See, when they brought their tithe to the temple, right? When they brought their tithe to the temple, not only did it free the priests up to serve the people, but it served the mission of God within that community. The priests used the increase to serve those in the family that were in need and to serve the poor and vulnerable in the community. That's what they did. You even turn to Deuteronomy 26 and 12. And he lines it out right there and he says, all right, take the tithe, give it to the Levites who are the priests who will take care of the foreigners that are passing through, who will take care of the fatherless. They don't got a dad there to handle things, who will take care of the widows. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 26 and 12. This is how it functions. And all of these things were vital to God's mission within the community. See, when people trusted God with their giving, he used the tithe to protect the weak and the vulnerable. As a matter of fact, when we started this series off, we said the people were just coming back from exile. We told you guys, they were just coming back from exile. Now, this is one of the reasons why they were in exile. It was a lack of trust. It's one of the reasons why. Let me, let me run through the math real quick. You see, they were in a promised land for 490 years. And then they were in exile for 70 years. Now, before they entered the promised land, God gave his covenant law, right? And part of his covenant law was the Sabbath year. Now, the way the Sabbath year worked was they would work for six years, right? And then on the seventh year, they would not work. They wouldn't work the land. They would let the land rest, and they would let it just grow wild. And God's plan inside of that was you would save and eat off of what you accumulated the past six years, and during that seventh year, the poor and the vulnerable will be able to graze off the land as much as they want for the whole year. Now, they were supposed to do with the seventh year. It was the year of rest. Let everything go wild and allow the poor to eat in this trust that God will provide. But the first 490 years in the promised land, because they didn't trust God, they didn't observe the Sabbath year. They couldn't imagine sacrificing that much an entire year. Imagine God told you take a whole year of savings and just open it up for the poor in the community. They couldn't imagine that. So when the seventh year came and the poor and vulnerable were supposed to be taken care of, they suffered because the people didn't let the land rest. And then in 2 Chronicles 3 and 20, it says that God allowed them to be taken captive so the land could get its rest, so the people could eat. God made up for lost time, 70 years. Here's the math. They was in there for 490 years. They were supposed to um, let it rest every seventh year, so they didn't. 490 divided by 7 equals 70. That's how long they was out. After that 70 years were done, God was like, yo, the land is going to get its rest one way or another. The people is going to eat one way or another. Y'all going to be out. I'll bring y'all back in a second. 
See, trusting God in our giving is a part of living on mission. We got to understand that. Living missionally, we could talk that, but trusting him is a part of living missionally. God has placed us in this community. Trusting God and sacrificial generosity has everything to do with serving his family, trusting him, his mission for the community that he's placed us in. In verse 12, he says, all the nations shall call you blessed. See, there's something about when a community of believers are all trusting God together. Ah, the blessings that come when, when, when everyone is synced up with the rest of creation and these blessings benefit others. It's not just for them. It benefits others and it shines so that others can see and they call them blessed. And one of the ways is that the people's needs are being met. Ah, let me turn back to that one verse that, that keeps getting used. He says in 3 and 10, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Ah, that starts to make me think about Acts 4, 34 to 35, a group of believers that are living together and trusting God. And here's what it says. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought them in the proceeds of what they were sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need until there was no more need. Oh, what it looks like for a body of believers to trust God together. You see, as we get ready for communion, I want to say that we can't live like this without a measure of trust. It's faith. It's why that whole thing revolves around. This is the reason why, why we don't pass the, the plate, but we say, hey, on the way out, can we trust that God is going to move inside of your hearts and our hearts? We trust that he's going to provide. And while, yes, the Lord uses their giving to make this point, the giving itself is not the primary point. It's weightier issues. In Matthew 23, 24th, um, 23, 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. God continues to talk and he says, Return to me. I want to go back. He says, return to me. He's calling people back home. Return to me and I will return to you. Some of us have been playing games for a while and God is saying, return to me. I'm right here. Some of us are are way more distant from God than we know. And he's saying, return to me. Some of us are struggling with trusting him. He says, even in that, return to me. I'll make up the difference when you become distant in our hearts. We're going through all the motions. And God is saying, that's not it. Return to me. God is saying, come home. He's saying, return to me. I know it feels like I'm distant, but I promise you I'm right here. I've been right here. Stop fighting. Trust me. Return to me. Now I'll return to you. Surrender. So as we go and we take communion today, hear a loving Lord stretching out his arm, running out to meet you like the prodigal father saying, like the prodigal son coming home and the father coming out to meet him, saying, return to me. 
The bread is my body that's offered to you. The juice is my, my blood that flows to you. I'm like Melchizedek coming out to meet you on the way. Return to me, and I will return to you. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.